Welcome to A Closer Look, a podcast that explores the ways in which the world we live in and how we engage with it can impact our health, happiness, and well-being. Now, here's your host, Dr. Robin Pickering, Professor of Health Sciences at Whitworth University. Hello and welcome to A Closer Look. I am your host, Dr. Robin Pickering, professor of health science, and I am so excited about our show today. We are going to be talking about cancer. What do we need to know? What do we need to do? And I am so happy to introduce our guests for the show today who um, are really going to help to inspire us um, to empower us and educate us around this topic of cancer. So I'm really excited to introduce my friend and colleague, Aaron Putsky, Dr. Aaron Putsky. He is a professor and chair of biology and honors research, um, and sorry, and an honors research faculty fellow at Whitworth University. His research interests focus on cell-to-cell communication as they relate to both embryology and cancer biology, and more recently have turned into a passion for bioethics, where research policy and public and personal faith perspectives interface. Um, Dr. Putsky worked in the biotechnology industry prior to receiving his PhD from the University of California at Santa Clara. Nope, Santa Barbara. Sorry, that probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are going to start fact checking this already. Talk about distrust in the medical system. Okay, I'm not you making up new universities here. Let's start that over. University of California at Santa Barbara um, in 2003. After which he went on to postdoctoral research at the Fred Hutchinson. Cancer Research Center in Seattle. He is a former chair of the Whitworth University Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee and is on the Institutional Biosafety Committee and is the president of the executive board at the nonprofit Northwest Association for Biomedical Research in Seattle. Welcome. (laughs) I wish I would have got a better night's sleep because there was a lot going on with your bio. You are so accomplished. I am so happy you you agreed to be here. Um, It is wonderful to have you. Thank you. I would also like to welcome um, Dr. Paige Flett, who graduated from Whitworth in 2008 with a degree in biology and biochemistry. She picked the hardest ones. (laughs) (laughs) She attended medical school at the University of Washington and graduated in 2013, um, then completed residency in diagnostic radiology in 2014 to 2018, had a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, um, Minnesota in breast imaging in 2019, and is currently at Inland Imaging as a diagnostic radiologist specializing in breast imaging. She is married with three boys. Mm -hmm. Dr. Putsky is also married with three children. 
Welcome, Dr. Flett. It is so great to have you both here. Thank you for having me. Yes. So one of the things um, when I work with folks in the health sciences and when I have worked in the past with community members, cancer has always been kind of the the big sort of scary cloud that is out there. And I have found that even though a lot of people feel like they can control their weight to a certain degree, or they can control their eating and other health habits to a certain degree, so many people I talk to really view cancer as this thing that, well, if it gets me, it gets me, everything causes cancer. I don't... um, Almost like we have this sort of frozen sense, this sort of external locus of control. And I think that a lot of it has to do with the scariness of it. But part of it, just because we don't really understand how it works, I think a lot of people are under the impression that cancer is like one thing that's out there that we can't do anything about. And um, I am so glad you are here because I would love to just hear about what do we need to know to be empowered, to be inspired, to sort of take at least some of that um, control inward so that we can reduce our risk, I guess, as much as possible. So I think a piece of that is learning, understanding how cancer forms, how it develops, what do we know about that development? Um, maybe you could start us off with that. Yeah. So, I mean, a little historical context, I guess, what was it Nixon? I think was the one who declared war on cancer. And here we are, right? It's not exactly gone. And I think we've learned so much in those decades about why cancer forms or how it forms. And a lot of that just has to do with, you know, the the hallmark of cancer is just your cells dividing out of control, which they're not supposed to do. And the fact that all of your cells have the, the same information in them, but they access that information differently to become skin cells or a muscle cell or something like that. So what we know, what we've learned is it's, it's when the information that tells cells to divide or not divide, that's kind of the big thing that causes normal cells to become cancer at some point. And so those different stages where... They're dividing in a spot. They're not like a blood cancer, like a circulatory cancer. They're dividing in one spot. Uh, we've gotten fairly good at diagnosing and treating those things, but it's when they, they get loose and they start circulating and then they land somewhere else in the body. Really hard for us to see one cell and is it sitting there. And cancer is a really tough scientific problem because those kinds of issues. Like how do we find one cell in your body and then treat it as opposed to all of a sudden it explodes in this spot that we didn't know about and it's malignant and spreading more, that sort of thing. So scientifically, it's a really hard problem, especially because from a how do you prevent cancer, it's the mutations in the DNA, that information, that really causes a lot of this loss of control in the cell division. And so because that molecule is so unstable 
on its own. It's hard to say we can just build a better cell mm -hmm. that will never make mistakes because that's just not how we've evolved. That's not how cells function. And so it's a, it's scientifically, it's a fascinating problem because it's really hard. Um, but flipping to a medical perspective, uh, you have to, problem solve, but so often it's reacting to what's going on. And prevention has become a huge area, but prevention, we look at it more, uh, I don't want to hear your perspective too on this. My interpretation is we, we look at prevention so much from a lifestyle, what can we control or environment, that sort of thing. Because so much of, at least where we are now with technology, we, we can't just look at your DNA and say, what can we fix or what can we make so nothing bad happens? Because we just know that that's not a realistic goal for us. So it's kind of interesting from that perspective of it's a big problem and we can't just say, oh, if we just fix that or that, or if engineering can come up with this solution, we can fix everything we can't. So that's, I think, why it's yeah. so big and intimidating from a science perspective, because it's like, well, we can see and figure out lots of things, but we really aren't closer to a solution that says, oh, if we do this, cancer won't happen anymore. That's just mm -hmm. not a thing. Okay, well, so far, I'm not feeling very encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> That's Scientists <a> <laughs> never have a way of making things feel fun or encouraging. Okay, so... We, we have these mutations happening. Mm -hmm. We have these just very, like a single cell that mutates somewhere. And then depending on where it is, it's um, particularly difficult to know when that's occurring, mm -hmm. depending on where, where in the body those that, um, that the cells begin replicating abnormally and, um, some factors make it even more difficult to spot when that's happening. And um, one of the challenges, too, that we're facing is that people are asked to do regular screening for the types mm -hmm. of cancer that we can recognize earlier on. But with the pandemic, a lot of people were staying out of medical facilities for good reason. Mm -hmm. um, but people were getting behind on some of these screening appointments. And I know... Dr. Page, that you have, um, I guess, kind of a script that you give a lot of the patients that come in in terms of what do people need to know about how often they're supposed to be screening? Are there particular people that should be getting screened more often? Um, what do folks need to know about trying to detect these mutations or this, this abnormal cell growth? Yeah. So to kind of like dovetail onto what you were saying, you know, we can't yet identify that one single cell when it goes bad. Uh, and in the imaging world, and especially in breast cancer screening, what we're looking for is a whole bunch of cells that have gone bad, but that we can find when it's still localized to the breast. So like you said, those cells mutate and grow and then break off and travel. That's when you have metastatic disease. And that's what we really want to try to catch before it gets to that point. Um, and that's the point of a screening mammogram. So when I see patients, I usually, um, just talk to them about basic health. Um, but just how important it is to just come in every year to get your mammogram. The point of a screening mammogram is to 
screen patients without any symptoms of breast cancer. So not feeling a new lump, no nipple discharge, no skin changes. You just, you feel great. You're, you're normal. You come in, you get your mammogram, a radiologist will look at it and hopefully we'll say it's all normal. We'll see you in a year. Um, and the reason that's so important is because screening mammograms have been shown to reduce breast cancer deaths. That's kind of like the big take home, right? So early randomized control trials showed that Screening mammograms reduced breast cancer death by at least 30%, probably more than that because of the structure of the trials, but that's a significant impact. Um, and that's just women coming in every year to get a screen, screening mammogram. So yeah, that's kind of my main focus when I talk to patients. And we have seen a, a gap in care because of pandemic-related issues. A lot of women didn't come in during the pandemic and then um, once you get out of habit, of course, it's a little bit harder to remember, oh, I need to get in for my screening mammogram. So that's just something we want everyone to just make an appointment, come in, get it done. It takes about 15 minutes, you know. So would it be accurate um, for people maybe that hadn't ever had a screening mammogram? Would it be accurate to say that what folks are really doing with a screening mammogram, especially that first one, is just getting a baseline of... What does the tissue look like normally? What does this particular person's breast tissue look like? Would that be an accurate way to describe that? Absolutely. So we recommend starting screening mammograms at age 40 um, because one in six breast cancers that we diagnosed are actually diagnosed between the ages of 40 and 49. Women who get screened between the ages of 40 and 49 have a less chance of having a more advanced breast cancer if they do get breast cancer. Uh, which leads to less invasive invasive treatments, et cetera. So yes, we recommend starting at 40, um, and it's excellent to get that baseline mammogram. Like you said, we have an idea of what the tissue looks like. Um, as a woman gets more mammograms over time, it always helps to have those comparisons, and that's how we can notice subtle changes that could mean those cells could be changing in your breast tissue. So the more the more people are going in for those regular appointments, the more you get an idea of how this person's individual body is looking normally, and so you can more easily spot if something else is, is going on. Absolutely, yeah. And, okay, so you said 40. Is that just across the board? If someone has family history, do they need to alter that in some way? So correct. So 40 is basically all comers. We're just, we just say everyone should start at 40 women that have high lifetime risk of breast cancer. So we, we classify that as 20% risk of getting cancer or greater in your lifetime. Uh, that's often based on personal history, family history, breast density, any genetic mutations. Okay. And I do want to ask you about how would somebody know that stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, Dr. Putsky, tell me a little bit more about what's going on in terms of research. What are we what are we learning? What's on the horizon? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting to kind of hear about the screening and just thinking about uh information over time for an individual because so so much of the messaging especially in the last five to ten years is is going toward this personalized medicine kind of mm -hmm. a thing and i think a lot of the research is getting more into genetics from that perspective of what does your genetic background look like 
and do you have mutations in certain areas or not? I think this is one of the issues that's hard for people to engage with because uh, we, um, the media will often grab onto something like uh, a mutation in this gene mm. increases your risk for cancer, but they don't really talk about it in context, right? It's like you're not guaranteed that you're going down that road. It has there's a lot of other factors. Uh, and so I think we're trying to get a better grasp on that. What does it mean to have a profile of the information that is your genetics and how does that work together? Because uh, one of the biggest things I feel like we've learned is genetics and environment play together in an important way to cause these outcomes. And so we tend to think your genetics is this and that is sort of fading you toward this one outcome. But we've learned, well, it completely depends on your environment and other factors that play in. So I think a lot of the research is now in two main ways. One is how do we get better with treatment? And I think we've uh, done amazing things in that area and it's, in, and it's accelerating in ways that I don't think we expected, whether it's treating with specific therapeutics or genome editing, right? Training your cells to try and attack cancers and things like that really great but that's so on the forefront that we're trying to figure out does that actually work and and does it work in everybody or just some people all cancer some cancer that sort of thing so what i like about research is it's gone from sort of a sledgehammer approach which is uh you know i'm trying to think of all these positive ways to say things but now <laughs> Well, I did can't. ask you to be on a cancer show, so I don't expect... I mean, it's hard to, to put a positive spin on it. We've just gotten so much better. I, I say to my students, you know, so much of treatment with cancer historically has been kind of trying to get you to out-survive the treatment because you're, trying, you're treating your whole body with a chemical that is killing the cancer cells, but your other cells are responding too, Right. We've gotten a lot better at that with different kinds of treatments where we can, we're trying to focus in on just those cells so your whole body isn't having to respond in some sort of way. So I think we've gotten a lot better from a research perspective in that way. Well, and I would love to hear, um, in just a minute, I would love to hear more about the immune system, this idea of training mm. your immune system. Um, that's really exciting. I want to hear also, you mentioned kind of this risk profile, this idea that folks who maybe have a higher risk profile are going to be um, needing to start doing mammography prior to sort of the general recommendation. You mentioned brent, uh, breast density. How might somebody know that? What do people do with that information? Is it in itself a risk factor if you get your mammogram back and it says that you have this, this level of uh, dense breast tissue, is that in itself a risk factor? And what, pe what do people need to know if they, if they find that out? Yeah. So I'm going to unpack that. That's kind of two different topics. So okay. the, in terms of a risk assessment or a risk profile, so the American College of Radiology and Society of Breast Imaging actually recommends that every woman have a risk assessment done. That's risk assessment for breast cancer by the age of 30. Oftentimes people aren't aware of that, mm. or 
usually it's the women that have a very strong family history that end up getting it because they're very usually proactive and saying, well, my mom had it at 40. My grandma had it. I want to have it done. Right. But basically what it is, is it's just a risk assessment tool that your physician or genetic counselor can do. It takes into account family history, personal history, some other factors, um, and then kind of gives you this risk assessment number. So if you're greater than 20%, you're considered high risk. And those women were going to screen differently. So we might start screening mammograms earlier. Usually we say 10 years before like your closest relative had breast cancer. So if your mother had breast cancer at 45 and you are high risk, we're going to start screening mammograms at 35. Mm. The other thing we can do is we recommend screening breast MRIs in these women. So uh, breast MRI is an excellent tool. It's, it's very sensitive for finding breast cancer. It doesn't deal with the issues of breast density that we deal with, with, with mammograms. So in those women, we recommend a yearly mammogram and a yearly breast MRI. And we usually stagger those by six months. So basically a high risk woman will be getting screened for breast cancer every six months. Mm. And, um, and you may or may not know this, in terms of insurance coverage or what the average person would have access to, are, do you see any equity issues there in terms of if somebody is high risk, is that something that's available to most or is that going to be a higher out-of-pocket cost for folks? Or So access to healthcare and having insurance are, are huge factors, of course, in right. just knowing you're high risk, right. knowing what's available to you in terms of your screening options. Um, women, so yeah, breast MRI is expensive, of course. Right. So most, what we've seen is most insurances will cover breast MRI for women that meet that 20% mm-hmm. lifetime mm-hmm. risk, most of them. Um, and that's another reason to actually have that risk assessment. Right. Right. Is that it will help with getting coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, if you fall under that, so let's say you're like 18% lifetime risk, you're going to be considered intermediate risk and that can get a little bit harder to get. Coverage. Well, and it sounds, yeah, like learning that information um, sounds like could be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said age 30 is when somebody that is that has family members that they should get that profile. We actually recommend that all women, all women. have a risk assessment done. Excellent. Yes. Is that ever considered elective? I mean, if you're not in some risk category, can the insurance say, uh, you're being too proactive here. We're not, we're not going to pay for that until X age or something like that. Yes. We see, we do see kind of battles with insurance mm. companies mm. on getting coverage. Um, it seems like, again, if, if women are higher than 20%, most insurance companies will cover their breast MRI, but that is something that we struggle with. Absolutely. Wow. So would it be fair to say if a patient wanted to be proactive about this and, and ask their, their primary care physician um, say, hey, this is just something that I'm learning about that I want to um, have done. Is Would that be something that somebody could just talk to their primary care physician? Would they need a referral? How would that work? Yes. So you can start with your primary care physician. Some of them will have access to the tools um, that we use for risk assessment, but a lot of them won't. Mm-hmm. So you may need referral to a genetic counselor or possibly a breast surgeons. Our, our breast surgeons in the community do these risk assessments. We're actually at Inland, we are um, 
developing. Wait, let me start that over. Okay. <laughs> At Inland, we're hoping within the next year to have the risk assessment calculator to calculate it automatically for every woman we see, everyone who gets a mammogram. Um, we're going to be, what we'll do is we'll take a detailed history from them when we, when we do their mammogram and we're purchasing the risk software so we can actually tell them what their risk is. So we're hoping to kind of help with that issue of, of getting in to get your risk assessment done. If you just come in and get a mammogram or a breast ultrasound or, or whatever you need, um, we can actually give you your, your risk profile. Wow. Really interesting. Um, you mentioned this idea that, um, so on one hand, we're getting better at detecting it early. We're getting um, better at um, getting folks in to get screened early. But you mentioned that kind of another prong of the progress is how can we get our immune systems to be more efficient at, I'm assuming, recognizing or mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, this um, just kind of research line in terms of immune system and what we can do to make our immune system most effective? Yeah. I, one of the big questions people often talk about is, well, why doesn't your immune system get rid of right. cancer? And the problem is that cancer cells are yourself and your immune system is there to recognize things that aren't you and get rid of them, Right like a coronavirus or something like that. So just because when you, your DNA mutates and you have cells dividing out of control, your, your body doesn't recognize those as different because it's still you. But the cool thing is now technology has advanced enough that we can pull immune cells out of your body and sort of retrain them through changing the DNA in those cells to try and recognize the cancer cells, because they do have things on their surface that makes them look different. It's just that your immune system doesn't see them, just kind of passes over them. So if we can train them to say that little thing actually makes it different and you should call in the cavalry to destroy those, then that would be a great thing because then we're not taking uh, other chemicals and things like that and putting them in your body and in theory, it only targets those cells, so it won't try and destroy other. We don't want to create an autoimmune disorder by trying to get rid of cancer, right? So, it's a really amazing technology that works, but not in everything. So that's again part of the strange problem of cancer is it may not work as effectively with all forms of cancer because cancers look very different, and because your individuals and your genetics makes you different from the person next to you, it may not be as effective in one person as it is to somebody with the same type of cancer. So it's really promising. It's really interesting. But yeah, there are still issues that need to be worked out. Well, and it sounds like that, um, that sort of technology could lead to all kinds of other different discoveries in terms of if we are able to kind of build a better immune system, how exciting think of what that might mean. Yeah, no, I, there's a reason why the whole genome editing thing won a Nobel prize a couple years ago. It it was so transformative. It was totally me. (laughs) Uh, I let somebody else have that one. That was cool. Yeah, um, yeah. (laughs) But it is a, it's a really, really big deal because it transforms the way that we can think about therapy down the road. Exciting stuff. Okay. See, now you're being encouraging. 
Thank you. It's exciting. <laughs> That's really exciting. <laughs> I wanted to ask you um, about, so we've been talking a little bit about risk profiles, and you mentioned um, breast density as one of those factors. And I've been hearing a lot more about that lately in terms of kind of the latest modalities and in terms of what's out there um, in terms of if folks do have dense breast tissue, is the screening going to be less effective? Are the treatments less effective? Um, can you speak to that, to someone who gets their report back and it says that you have dense breast tissue? What does that mean? Um, what do you do about that? I remember, in fact, the first time I got a mammogram that was listed on there, I thought they were just complimenting me. <laughs> I was like, well, thank you. I, I felt like they were telling me I was in good shape or something or that I was just a very firm. And then I realized, oh, no, they're talking about something very different. I would love to hear about what does that mean for folks? Well, you can take it as a compliment. I did. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Breast density. I wish I had a picture to show. But basically, we've categorized breast density into four types. It's based on your mammogram. You can have fatty breast tissue, which means most of the breast is fat. And on a mammogram, that looks black. You can have scattered uh, tissue, which means you have a little bit of fibroglandular tissue, which is white, and then lots of fat. Then we get into the dense breast categories. That's heterogeneously dense and then extremely dense. And those have increasingly more white breast tissue compared to black. The reason that that makes it challenging to find breast cancer is breast cancer most often appears white on your mammogram. So you're looking for a white thing in the middle of white tissue. So it makes it harder. Um, breast density is predominantly just your genetics. It's usually just kind of the way you're made. Hormones have some effect. As women get older, their breast density tends to decrease a little bit, but not always. We have, you know, 80 year old women that have very dense breasts. Um, this is feeling less like a compliment by the minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then there's some, uh, what we know about dense breasts is it can mask cancer on a mammogram. Hmm. So we do have a harder time finding a small cancer in a woman with extremely dense breasts compared to fatty breasts. We also know that dense breasts seems to actually increase your risk of breast cancer a little bit. And we're not exactly sure why that is, whether it's just something about the breast tissue itself, they're still doing research on that. What about a person who has had breast augmentation? Um, in terms of a mammogram, is that going to create problems with identifying any, any risks or any spots of concern? It can make it more challenging. For example, silicone implants are very dense. They're very, they're basically completely white. Mm. Uh, you can't see all of the breast tissue as well. We get special views on women with implants so that that helps us a little bit. Try to look at the breast tissue. We can still find breast cancer in women with implants, but it is harder. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing kind of to dovetail on having dense breasts. So there is, we do have some options now. So if you have heterogeneously dense or extremely dense breast tissue, of course, we recommend continuing to get a yearly mammogram, but we offer some other imaging modalities now that can help. We do something called whole breast ultrasound, 
It's a newer technology, but it's basically using ultrasound to scan the entire breast to try and find a small cancer that we potentially might miss on a mammogram. And then we actually offer abbreviated breast MRI. So this is different than the high-risk screening breast MRI in terms of it's a quicker exam, but it's a very um, sensitive study, again, to look for breast cancer in women with dense breasts. So there are options for those women. But it sounds like, again, another another vote for kind of getting that early screening mammogram so that they can be familiar with the breast enough to know if there's changes over time. Yes. It always, always helps us to have prior mammograms to compare to. Usually the more, Excellent. the better. Right. Right. Do you see, uh, can I ask you a question? I mean, I <laughs> yes, you may, Dr. Putsky. It's just like, oh, this is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. um, do you see, imaging is a very powerful technique, uh, different forms of imaging. Do you see kind of going down the road that maybe there are some more at-home type kits or something that might be coming down the pike because of technology where, oh, we've noticed this thing that circulates uh, when cancer presents itself in the form of breast cancer. You know, they have, you can do like with prostate and colon cancer, those kinds of things. Is, is there a breast cancer kit of some sort that it's like, oh, just spit on this thing and we'll be able to tell <laughs> that it's there? Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think we're there yet. I've heard discussions of blood tests mm -hmm. where they're kind of hoping that down the road they'll get to a point where you can get a blood test and it might be able to identify mm -hmm. different types of cancer um, early. But I have not heard of any type of home test yet for, for breast cancer. Okay. Right. Question for both of you. If you were talking to just the average consumer with the average risk and you were to give them advice about what could they do proactively to live their lives in a way that um, really was the most protective against cancer, what advice would you give them? And maybe I will start with you. Start with a medical professional, <laughs> please. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> well, um, so I think the biggest thing is understanding your risk of breast cancer is based on being a woman who has breasts and aging. So if, if you know, if you have any of those factors, you will be at risk for developing breast cancer. And of course, that's why we recommend a screening mammogram to catch it early before it's metastasize or, or spread elsewhere. Other things that can help healthy lifestyle choices. So maintaining a healthy weight, um, you know, not having type two diabetes, um, exercise, limiting alcohol and tobacco, all of those things do decrease your risk of, of developing cancer. So those are things we definitely talk to patients about. And, um, one of the questions that I, um, will get from students is when you say things like, limiting alcohol. What does that mean? <laughs> Some people will want to know the exact number of drinks that that means. That's awesome. Um, I guess I don't have an exact okay. number, except that drinking in excess, you know, we know has negative effects. Well, and I know, um, I was just talking to a dietitian friend of mine that was saying that they are revisiting the excess guidelines and it'll be interesting to see um, where that goes. Um, I know that you are not a medical doctor, but knowing <laughs> what you know, 
What advice would you give to somebody um, with a caveat, again, that you are not a medical doctor giving advice? Well, I mean, just from a basic research perspective, there's just lots of data that show when you stress your cells out by not living a healthy lifestyle in different ways, right? Smoking stresses your cells out, right? Excessive drinking. Um, And again, excessive, Excessive, which may be (laughs) redefined... To something different. I didn't read uh, on here that you're involved in our brewery pro or what is it called? It's the brewing science and operations. Yeah. It's true. Well, that's so some alcohol class. consumption is <laughs> yeah. okay. So, yes. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, just it's you know the the correlations with constant inflammation, right? Um, and that kind of thing. And so being good to your body, right? It's just clear that on a cellular level, your cells just appreciate balance, right? It doesn't necessarily want extremes in either direction, but appreciating that balance and like why they say put on sunscreen when you go outside because skin cancer is the the most frequent form of skin cancer because you're exposing yourself to the environment, which happens to be UV radiation, and especially in certain parts of the nation or the world. And so I mean, my perspective, again, just from a basic science perspective is just understand that your cells want a healthy balance of things. And so those risk factors that you're talking about, it's like, yeah, so although we can technically define some sort of risk factor, it's just being good to yourself because the reality is, and I'm not a proponent of this, but it's just that question of why do people, why can some people smoke a lot and live to an old age without getting lung cancer? And yet somebody can grow up in a household and not be a smoker, but the secondary smoke is clear causation for their cancer. So it's, they're weird things, right? right? So it's kind of striking this balance, I think. I like to end all of the shows on my eternal quest to limit the number of misinformation, disinformation, especially when it comes to cancer. Because I think the more... The more we know, the more accurate information we know, the more that we can take care of ourselves um, for as much as we have control over, at least. And the more we can be empowered to get our screenings, to limit alcohol consumption, to hopefully eliminate tobacco consumption, or at least reduce that, um, to live a more moderate lifestyle in in a variety of ways, um, But also, I think there's just so much predatory information about cancer that's out there. And if somebody was getting online and just searching for information on how to prevent, cure, detect cancer, they they could potentially just get bombarded with all kinds of just predatory information. So I would love to hear from both of you. What's that kind of thing out there that maybe you you think that there's a misconception about or disinformation or misinformation about that you just, to your dying day, will will clear up for folks? (laughs) Here's your chance. You've got the platform. Um, What misinformation do you want to clear up? We'll start with you, doctor. I think, okay, there's two areas. They kind of go together. So I've already talked a lot about screening mammography and how important that is. And these tools that we can use in addition to screening mammography, whole breast ultrasound and breast MRI are only intended for use in addition to your mammogram. 
So I think that's a really important message for women to hear. Yes, we have these other tools we can use. They can help us diagnose a breast cancer. But again, what we found to save the most lives is a yearly mammogram. So I think that's a really important message for women to hear. And that my second message kind of goes off of that is a mammogram is not as scary as it sounds. And if you have a breast cancer diagnosis, it is not a death sentence. This is something I... I deal with a lot with our newly diagnosed patients or patients with a, a new breast cancer is a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. That's definitely increased over the past couple of years. My message to these patients and to all women is breast cancer, fortunately, is very treatable if it's often curable. So if we catch it early before it's spread outside of the breast, you know, it, it's usually curable. And uh, I think that's a message of kind of hope mm. for women to hear. That's what I tell all of my new newly diagnosed patients um, that we have a plan. We have steps we can take mm. just to kind of offer some some hope in in a time of of stress and anxiety, of course. Mm -hmm. Oh, so important. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think that's so important to hear. Um, getting getting those screening mammograms early, getting them regularly. Um, I think that is really empowering and encouraging. Um, Dr. Potsky. Diet soda. <laughs> I think is what I'm going to go with. Uh, this, oh, this, uh, uh -oh. you're going to offend. I mean, it started, yeah, it started in the eighties with, with like saccharin. Right. And then, and then in two thousands, the aspartame study, right. Mm. Aspartame causes cancer in rats. Diet soda will kill you. Right. That, that was the message. And I think what bothers me the most about how the media, the popular media, and it really doesn't matter who it is, they kind of all do this. They just communicate, and especially nowadays, the clickbait headline. Mm -hmm. And what that study didn't tell you, or what the authors don't write because it's boring, nerdy stuff is, well, what they essentially did was give rats the equivalent of 2,100 cans of soda per day from an aspartame <laughs> perspective. And so they don't tell you like, oh, by the way, that's how much you would have to drink to be at that risk level. Uh, also, rats are not humans. You know, we don't really talk about that. We have, quote, cured cancer in mice and rats a number of times, but it didn't translate into humans, which is tragic. But that's just the reality. So not everything is the same. And then, you know, nowadays, the reality is the FDA is out there trying to protect people. So their level is 100 times lower-ish than that study. And so, and that's still like 20 cans a day. And I, I just don't know people that drink that much diet soda, but maybe they're out there. But really, you'd have to do that until you, the FDA was like, maybe you shouldn't. But it's still the, we don't talk about that. And so how the media grabs onto things and just they go for the scare tactic, right? Like keep reading, keep reading. And so I'm going to scare you into this. And that just bothers me because it's, it's hard for the, uh, I'll just say the average person, right. To think, well, where would I go to find the primary source for this study? Right. And the reality is the primary source also wasn't written to the general public. So we're, we're nerdy scientists talking to each other about what we found. So we didn't write it in an interesting way. That's just not what we do. Um, and even like a year later, the National Cancer Institute did a study that said, okay, fine, let's look at that. And they didn't find any correlation with people that regularly consume aspartame and any kind of cancer. 
So I think that's the stuff that bothers me the most is, is how do we get better at communicating science? How do we get better at asking the media to be more responsible in those right. communications and not just say, stop doing these things, but how can we what's frustrating about, about that too is that then people walk away with the message, well, everything causes cancer. Yeah. Well, everything, so I'm just going to live my life the way I want to. And it's really disempowering, I think, mm -hmm. to to sort of create this external lo locus of control by saying, nope, well, everything causes cancer, so I might as well not even... Give up. G right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, getting accurate information. Um, but, yeah, I think it is really difficult for the average consumer to dive into that sort of research um, fruitfully. Yeah, because it does, it goes to the general trust of science and medicine. Does it prevent people from coming in and getting an annual mammogram? Because they're just like, well, I don't trust anything they say. So right. I don't need to go in. I feel fine, you know, or something like that. So, so um this is probably not the kind of question that I can um, just spring on you, but we can always edit it out if you, <laughs> we're going if you to aren't prepared that. for it. I love where you're going, whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> um, I've heard this theme of um, staying away from mammograms or from screenings or from dietary recommendations because of mistrust of institutions. What do we do to um, build that back? What do we do mm. for a person who is maybe has a history and real reasons to mistrust? Um, what do we say to that? What do we do better? Well, I think as a medical professional, there's kind of two parts. I think the onus is absolutely on us to work to rebuild that trust. Mm. And I kind of think of it, I can do it in two different ways. One is through sitting at a podcast and discussing, you know, the research behind screening mammograms or, you know, talking on the news. So kind of just help, um, providing reliable information to the general public. And then the other way, which is the way I really enjoy is my relationship with my patients. So just talking to them, building a relationship, telling them why it's important to get their screening mammogram. I think that, you know, all physicians, um, building that trust, at the bedside is probably going to have much greater impact on an individual patient in terms of being able to trust medical care. Great points. Yeah. I think for me, there's two layers of it. One is scientists. Uh, we have to continually be better and more intentional about communicating science so that we're telling stories that the media mm -hmm. picks up on that says, here's, here's the balance of what I'm saying here. Uh, instead of just this little press release that we're like, ah, it's going to kill you. Right. Um, and I think also asking our politicians to interact with that in a way that's more balanced, right? So that mm -hmm. the way that they're talking about policy and stuff like that is is a little more digestible. And I think the other level for me is just with my students, I train them to say, how are you engaging with information that's out there and how are you digesting it? And because my expectation that I've verbalized to them is once, once you graduate from Whitworth, I want you to go out there and be an ambassador for understanding science. Like, how are you going to try and change the ethos out there that says science is important, but we need to be better at communicating and talking mm -hmm. about it so it doesn't become 
some political football that we just kind of toss around, right? Because that's the worst thing I think that can happen with science and medicine is that when it becomes a weapon for one side or the other. Oh, and I think we're learning that. We're learning that every day. Um, Wow, what an important message, I think, for all of us to take in and digest. I am so grateful for both of you for being here. Um, I have learned a ton. I know that the listeners have learned a ton. And I just want to say um, thank you for being part of the solution. Thank, thank you. you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to A Closer Look. Visit us on social media and wherever you go to find your podcasts. Be sure to join us next time as Dr. Robin Pickering and her guests take a closer look.